So if you keep uh, Genesis chapter 6 open with one part of your hand in the Bible and turn for our reading for the sermon to Hebrews chapter 11. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful book. Uh, I suppose the main aim of the book of Hebrews is to show that Christ is supreme above all. The word better comes a number of times in that book. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He surpasses. He is the high priest, the apostle of our confession. He is the one above all. Uh, and uh, just actually, as in passing, Hebrews chapter ten, verse fourteen is a is a fa- is a particularly favourite verse of mine. Um, because it sums up the Christian life, and in a sense, that's what we're going to be looking at. Verse 14, but, uh, sorry, by verse 14 of chapter 10, for by one offering he, perf- has, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Christ Jesus came and offered once his own life. There's no need to carry on offering sacrifices in the temple. He came and fulfilled all. You remember, he said on the cross, it is finished. The night before he died, he said, I've done everything that you gave me to do, Father. Uh, and then when he died on the cross, it is finished. And that sacrifice was fully accepted. He rose from the dead and was ascended into heaven. So that little verse there, for by one offering, he hath perfected or justified forever them that are sanctified. And in fact, the, the idea there is that he did that one act and believers who put their trust in him are made right with God fully, justified. But they are going through that process of sanctification. So the book of Hebrews is about uh, Christ and him being better. But if you come to chapter 11, the writer whom I believe may may well be Paul, but that's irrelevant. The writer is giving a list, uh, the Hall of Faith, a list of people who have gone before and demonstrated their lives. They're the ones of whom that verse I've just read, it could be said, was true. They've been perfected by that one sacrifice. For these people, of course, the sacrifice was yet to come. All the sacrifices that you read in the Bible, remember Noah, Sacrifice. The moment he came out of the ark, the first thing he did was to offer a sacrifice. All of those sacrifices pointed, they pictured, they showed forth the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So all of these people have been perfected, have been justified by that one sacrifice, but they have a life of faith. They have a walk of faith. And the writer is keen to prove to people that they no longer have to go back uh, and do the sacrifices. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to go to the temple because it's the life of faith. And you have all these different people, Abel, Enoch, Noah. Now, for our purposes tonight, we're going to just read verse 7. Uh, and we're going to look at that tonight. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet, not seen as yet, Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, 
and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now that's our text for tonight, that's what we're going to look at. Um, But just as a brief introduction, it's the last time we meet in 2023. So it's a time of reflection. It's a time of looking back. It's a time of looking forward also. I'm not one who would suggest that you make New Year's resolutions, but there are times when we should reflect and think back and think, where have I been? What have I done? Where am I going? So that's really just by way of introduction in in terms of why I've uh, looked at this particular verse. Uh, It's a good time to contemplate our lives. Not necessarily to do a complete overhaul, a stock take, but just to think, where have I been, where am I going? Uh, Here, in this particular verse, we read about Noah. We've read about Abel, well, chapter uh, 11, verse 4 is about Abel. Abel, of course, was the second person born. Uh, If you remember the story, Cain and Abel, the first two people to be born, naturally. Um, Cain offered of the ground. Abel offered uh, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And he obtained witness that he was righteous. Then we read about Enoch. Uh, Enoch was a strange character. We read a little bit about him in Jude. It tells us that uh, he prophesied of the ultimate coming of Christ. But in, in the book of Genesis, all we read is that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now I mention those two because um, if you think about it, you go back to Genesis chapter 5, you have the whole list of all the genealogies of the people there. Noah came at a point where things had gone quite bad, as it were. I mean, I read Genesis chapter 6, uh, and uh, from that you can tell that the world at that time was pretty awful. The intent of the hearts of, or thoughts of the hearts of men were only evil continually. The whole earth was corrupt and violent. Uh, it was a wicked place. I don't want to get distracted for the moment and think about the sons of God and the daughters of men and, and the men of renown. That's for another time. My purpose is to encourage you in terms of Noah's faith. But it was a wicked time. Enoch walked with God. Now, according to my calculations, Enoch died in the year 987. Noah was born in the year 1056. That's after creation. So there was but uh, 69 years between Enoch's translation into heaven and Noah being born. Lamech, his father, was a godly man. He died about six years before the flood. And Methuselah, we don't know anything about him except for he was the longest lived person, died in the year of the flood. Uh, Now it so happened that all of these various uh, people in uh, Genesis chapter 5, they lived such long times and so their generations overlapped. They saw their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, all the way down to the sixth and seventh generation. But at Noah's time, things were pretty bad. So bad, in fact, that the Lord had to call a halt. Uh, But in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 7, we have the the faith of Noah. So we're just going to have a look at these uh, these statements here and unpack them a little bit. 
by faith Noah. Faith is needed. Without faith it's impossible to see God. You can't please God without faith. Faith is essential, but the world hates that idea. Uh, what the world considers that faith is a second-rate alternative. The world considers that, uh, really, uh, we're men of science. Uh, we're men of reason. Uh, the evidence is before us, and we can make a determined uh, analysis of that evidence and make a reasoned outcome. But we preach faith. We preach that you must trust. Now, is faith against reason? Is, is trust and faith secondary in terms of, of that particular presentation? Well, no. Even in the world, people who present that they're scientific and they're based on evidence and so on, don't realise that actually they're project, projecting a worldview and they're actually starting from the basis of faith. Now, I happen to have studied a little bit about the history of science. You'll know the name Einstein. Uh, you won't know the name Infeld, but the two uh, were physicists of the last century and they wrote a book about physics. Uh, it's called The Evolution of Physics. And they start off by saying this. Uh, without our belief in the rational, ordered nature of the universe... And without a belief in the ability of our minds to grasp that ordered universe, and without our mathematical corrections and so on, we could not do science. So even within modern science, it's undergirded by belief. That makes sense when you think about how we've been created. God created us in his image. He created us in his likeness. Um, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 tells us that eternity is set in the heart. We are made in such a way as that we are connected and related to God, whether we like it or not, whether we show it or not. We are not autonomous beings. We, we cannot say, I am. Only God can say, I am. He is self existent. We are dependent beings. And part of our dependency is that we must be related to God somehow. The world has rejected God. But there's no neutral stance. When a person rejects God, they follow an idol. They put their trust in idols. They believe a certain thing. They act out of their belief in that thing. So all of us, no matter where we come from, no matter what our status, our origin, we all have the capacity, we all have the constitution of putting our trust in something else. There's no such thing as a self-made man. There may well be millionaires here on this, this, on this island who've worked their way and built up their empires, built up their businesses, Yes, but they've, they do not realise that they're dependent, maybe, that they're dependent upon God for their very existence. They do not realise that every breath they take is given of God. They might not realise that the opportunities that they've had to build up that money 
is all God given. We are fully dependent on God. So faith really is the ground. None of us starts from a position of knowledge. We start from a position of faith. What do we put our trust in? What do we rely on? But moving on slightly from that, we've got to think about the fact that here in Hebrews chapter 11, he's not talking just about the constitution of man, that he has the capacity to believe or trust. But he's talking about saving faith. Now that's a different issue. We all have the capacity to believe something, to trust in something. Naturally we go against God and we put our trust and faith in idols. Saving faith is different. The faith that the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about is that which directs its gaze to Christ and to his work. As I said, there's a series of testimonies here of what true saving faith is like. So if you want to know what faith is like, you need to read the whole of Hebrews chapter 11. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 10... And verse 38, the writer there uh, refers back to Habakkuk chapter 2. And he says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So it looks as though he's picked up on that reference there uh, and made the point that the just shall live by faith and now he wants to demonstrate some examples of men who and, and women too who have lived the life of faith. Now that quote from Habakkuk uh, 2 verse 4 is one that's used several times in the New Testament. It shows the difference between the Old Testament way, which I can sum up like this. You must do the commandments, and if you do, you will gain the blessing. Do this, and you shall live. The New Covenant reverses that order. Jesus says you must be born again. It, and he says live. And the consequences of that is that you will do what God says. Now you're perhaps, if you're good Bible students, you'll know the classic uh, passage on uh, faith is in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and following. For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So I say saving faith is different from natural trust and faith. We all naturally trust in faith, but saving faith is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But he then goes on to say this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that's very important, new birth. We're of the new heavens and the new earth. Not fully redeemed yet because our bodies are still subject to the curse and subject to death and so on. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we shall walk in them. So this is a faith, saving faith is a faith that works. Paul is frequently using this phrase, um, your labour of faith or your labour of love and your work of faith. So saving faith is something which is given, it is a life, and it is something 
which is is a, that works. It has this outcome. We cannot keep the law of God out of our own ingenuity and work. But what Christ has done in dying on the cross and in raising again is to unite us with him in such a way that he takes our sin from us and he gives us his righteousness in order that we might live the life of faith. Paul said, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that's the the change that's come about. Now, we, we have to mention, of course, that even at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, we're told something about the nature of faith there. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I briefly want to comment there to say that faith is something substantial. It has weight. It has something about it. If you know your Bible, you'll know what Psalm 1 tells us. Blessed is the man who studies or meditates on the law of God. And then it describes what he's going to be like. He will be like a tree planted by the waters, which produces its fruit in its season. The ungodly is not like that. The ungodly is depicted as chaff, as the husk of a grain that is so insubstantial it's blown by the wind. Isaiah pictures new birth, a new creation, as trees in an oasis. I can't remember the exact verse, but there's one passage where he talks about seven different types of trees. The fir, the plain, the box, and so on. Uh, they're substantial. The thing about trees, uh, we were in Helen Glen the other day. There's some incredible trees in that walk there. They're, they're solid, aren't they? You know, they're, they're absolutely substantial pieces of engineering, pieces of life. And this is what faith is. It gives substance. It's something that is truly uh, substance, not vacuous and, and with the wisp like the world offers us. But it's also evidential. Now that's very important for us. And that's important for the, the writer here. Faith is evidential. It shows itself. I put faith in, in Christ Jesus and therefore my life has changed. Suddenly, as Jesus says, I become a light unto the world. People can read us. If we're like, you know, when Jesus tried to describe his relationship to the Father, to the disciples, he had a deal of a job, especially in John chapter 14. John chapter 5, he tries to explain, when the Father tells me, this is what I do. I don't act on my own, I do what the Father says. I do all things that the Father, and I please the Father. And in John chapter 14, he says to them, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now that's true of you believers. Or it ought to be true. We need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to push in to Scripture and seek Him more and more that we might reflect His glory. In fact, Ephesians chapter 3, it talks about the church as a jewel that's radiating the beams of Christ to the world. So faith is evidential 
and it is substantial. Now this life of faith, this life of trust in God, this life of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is something which is going to cause us difficulty in this world. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In fact, if we go and look at the end of this passage uh, to the next chapter, there's a summation, if you like. Wherefore, uh, the writer says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So these are meant to encourage us to go on, to persevere, to seek the Lord more and more, in order that we might be, if you like, appended to Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith, by faith Noah... The next phrase, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Now, if we go back to Hebrew, uh, Genesis chapter 6, I read that passage, and you'll notice, I don't want to comment on the opening parts, uh, I just want to point out that the world was in a wicked state um, as a result of this ungodly Union between the children of, or the sons of, uh, of God and the children of, of daughters of men. Um, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we find that the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth. It grieved him in his heart. Now I think that's the Lord Jesus really. It's, it's a, him as a man expressing himself because God uh, he never makes mistakes. He never ever has to undo what he's doing. He's expressing there the view it, he would have if he were speaking as a man. But then we read in verse uh, 3 and verse 4 that the Lord said something. Verse 3, my spirit shall not strive, not always strive with man, for he also is its flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now, I have no idea how many people there were in the world at this time. There's 1,656 years between creation and the flood. Uh, It says here 120 years. Some people take that in terms of the, the ultimate length of man's life, and if you plot the dates of people who lived afterwards, they do come down to about 120 years. Joseph lived to be 110. I think Moses was 120. But after that, there aren't many who live that length of time. So that could be one explanation. But it could also be, the Lord is saying, in 120 years, judgment's coming. So God spoke to the world. How many people were there? I don't know. Millions? Billions? I don't know. We just know... Uh, of the Genesis 5, the ten names that are listed there, they each had sons and daughters. 
Uh, you can do the calculations, but who knows? We don't know. The fact of the matter is that God spoke to the world twice. The Lord said, my spirit shall not strive. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created. God has spoken to the world. He's spoken in creation, Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1. People have the witness within themselves that there is a God. There's no excuse, Paul says. But the world knows also because of you. You are a light unto the world. And the world knows because of Christ. When Christ Jesus came into this world, he bisected history. The common parlance is before BCE and all that stuff. But it's before Christ and AD in the year of our Lord. Whether it's BCE or BC, it doesn't really matter. The point is that Christ came and we measure history with ref- with reference to his coming. So the world has heard and it knows that God has spoken. Being divinely war, being warned of God of things not yet seen. You and I have been given even more. The secret things belong to the, to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may walk in them. That's Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. Now, Noah must have picked up on this um, because later on in verse 13 in chapter 6 we read these words and God said unto Noah verse 3 the Lord said to the world verse 7 the Lord said to the world but verse 13 God said unto Noah now the King James Version Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, Being warned of God of things not yet, are not seen as yet. The New King James reads this slightly differently. Being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Now that word warned actually means to give advice to inquirers. So what it seems has happened is that that word of God has gone out to the whole world in Genesis chapter 6, I am not happy with the way things are going here. I'm not going to strive with you forever. You've got 120 years. I'm going to destroy every created thing. Now Noah picked up on that. And it says in Hebrews that he was warned. Or he was given advice because he inquired. And so Noah must have said, well, what what can we do? And the Lord honoured that and spoke to him. God spoke to Noah. Why do I say that? Well, look back to verse 8 and 9 of Genesis chapter 6. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. He obviously had a close relationship with the Lord. Um, I, 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 just as a side note here, these are the generations of Noah, can be translated, this is the history of Noah, or this is the history according to Noah. It is my conviction that the uh, various chapters in Genesis were written by the eyewitnesses. The first one, uh, 
by the Lord God. The second, Genesis 5 verse 1, this is the generation, or these are the history of the book of Adam. Most probably recorded by Adam, uh, the first chapter 2 verse 4 to 5 verse 1. The second sec- the third section, chapter 5 verse 1 to this verse, chapter 6 verse 9, these are the generations or the history of Noah. If you quickly turn over to chapter 10 verse 1, we've got these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. So from 6, 9 to 10, 1, these are the records of Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now that explains why in verse 8 we have Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. That, in my opinion that's his statement about his faith. It's unlikely that he would have said, it's unlikely that Noah, being a man who walked with God, would have said, Noah was a just man, and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. But it is likely that his sons would have said that. Noah was a just man, and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. That's likely that his sons testified to that. Now, that's beside the point, it's a bit of structural detail for you. My point is simply this. Noah heard God speaking and Noah wanted to know more. He walked with God and he sought him and God favoured him with this revelation. Now that's wonderful and it's, it's something I think that we miss. We're sometimes too content to turn up on a Sunday and a Wednesday and receive a bit of information or a bit of a boost as it were to our faith and then we get back to Monday and before we know it we're in the world I know we've got to work I know we've got to go to school we're back in the world and we're not thinking about God we're not trusting him we're relying naturally on ourselves but the Lord is calling us I really do believe to dig much deeper turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2 Proverbs chapter 2, the words of Solomon. He's writing to his children, and of course, this is the word of God to us. So whereas Solomon is saying to his son, presumably Rehoboam, my son, if that were, it's the Lord God who's saying to you, my son, My daughter, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding. You see the depth here. If thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures. There's a development. Now, don't just listen to a sermon. Don't just read a couple of chapters. Be like Noah. What is he saying? I want to know. We face exactly the same situation today as Noah faced in those days. The Lord will return says in 1 Thessalonians and also in 2 Peter chapter 3. When he returns, there will be flaming fire. The earth and its whole works will be burnt up so much that the very elements will be discovered or melted. 
Now that's what the world faces, the coming judgment of God. Sadly, the testimony of the flood, which is evident all across the globe, from the Himalayas to the Rockies, from the river systems all over the world, the flood is evident to people who can see. We have been duped by the theory of evolution and by science to think of it as millions of years. That's nonsense. If you look at the rocks around your island here, if you look at the mountains and hills, they are testimonies to the flood. Now you and I can point to that and say, look, just as Noah faced, the, or the world, Noah's day faced the judgment, we are going to face the same thing. So we need to be not just ready, but deeper in to knowing the things of God. And it's, you know, the Lord is very gracious to give. He said to Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. He says that to you. He wants you to go deeper into him. Not just reliant on a few thoughts and a few scriptures every now and again. I don't know what your practice is. I don't know you from very well. But I would just urge you to dig very deep into scripture. Now hastily moving on. The next phrase is also slightly different in the New King James. In the King James it says moved with fear. But in the New King James it says moved with godly fear. And in fact the word moved really means to act with the reverence produced by holy fear. So Noah was moved and motivated by his love for God. Um, I wonder if that's the case for you and I. What motivates us? What drives us? What gets us up in the morning? What What is it that we desire to do? Now I have to confess, I grew up as a Roman Catholic, became a an atheist at the age of 14. I won't tell you all the story of that, but I then met young people who knew Jesus when I was 19, and suddenly I felt the Lord saying to me, I am the person you're looking for. I wasn't looking for a person, I was looking for an answer to life, the universe and everything, like a lot of teenagers do when they're young. And I, I went towards science. I became a scientist. And I sought... Uh, satisfaction through that then the Lord came and spoke to me and said this in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ all things consist and I suddenly realised that it's not a question of knowing stuff in the world it's a question of knowing God and knowing his ways what motivates you what gets you up in the morning Is it the fact that you love God? Is it? Do you do the job that you do? Do you go to the friends that you have? Do you think about going out for the day? With this motivation in mind, I want to know God. I want to love him more. I want to be his friend. That's what should guide us. That is what should motivate us. You see, Noah, his whole life was consumed with this project. He didn't 
do it out of his own initiative. He received the word of God, and it says at the end of Genesis chapter 6, he did all that God commanded him. He prepared an ark for the saving of his house. What motivates you? What guides you in the work you do, in the life that you lead? You might say, well, Noah was privileged. He lived at a time when he could do that. We have to pay taxes. We have to live. It's very expensive to live on the Isle of Man or whatever. So, yes, you have to work. Yes, you have to uh, earn your living. But what undergirds that? What grounds that? Uh, How can you make yourself say, well, this is the Lord's lot for me. I will do it to the best of my ability. Now, there are several verses in Scripture I like to recall which helped me in my life. I've been a teacher, I've worked in uh, um, scientific research, and I've been on my own as well. But these three verses are ones that really help me, and I recall them often because they, they give me a sort of nudge in the right direction. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. What this is to do with offering food to idols, but the principle is the same. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Is what I'm doing in going to this meeting, or in going down to that shop, or in going to the cinema, or in this work, or whatever it is you do, is it to the glory of God? Can I say that? Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3 has a couple of statements. Verse 17. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. If, what am I about to do, what am I about to think or say, can I do it as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, you are citizens of heaven. Paul talks about you being translated or conveyed from the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Love, you don't have a passport necessarily for England or for the UK. You have a passport that's stamped with heaven. And you represent Christ. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto man. Jesus is your boss. Jesus is your captain, your commander. So Noah was concerned to do what God asked him to do. And he built that ark. It took him a long time. What was he doing? He prepared an ark to the saving of his house. He was concerned about salvation. Now, you know, that ark saved them. They were safe inside. The rain came down and fell on the ark. That's a picture of Christ's atoning death. He is the substitute. He died on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on him, not on me. So Christ is our refuge, our tower, our strength. He is our ark. Now we can't go and build him. He's already come 
And we don't have to build him in that sense. But your life is pictured like a, a builder, isn't it? Jesus said, what are you going to build on? Are you going to build on the rock, Christ, or are you going to build on the sand? Anything else you like. What are you about? Noah spent his time building that ark under the command of the Lord. You have time. You've been given talents and abilities. Your life should be centred on building salvation. First and foremost for your family. He concerned himself with building an ark for his family. Now, interestingly, Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher unto righteousness. He didn't confine it to his family, but he built it to save his family. But he also spoke to those outside. His business was the ark. The Lord Jesus Christ, at the age of 12, told his parents, my business is to do the Father's will. In fact, he said a bit later on, my meat is to do the Father's will. Is that our testimony? Is your life, moment by moment, day by day, governed by doing that which Christ calls you to do? You know what to do. He's shown you what is right. Micah 6 verse 8. And what does God require of you? but to do justice, to love mercy, and to humble yourself to walk with him. And then we conclude with the last statement, uh, which says, By the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is of faith. Now I think the word righteousness there has the connotation of heaven's glory. It's a place where there is no sin, no None of the four Ds. No death, no decay, no disease and no disaster. That's what characterises the world at the moment, those four Ds. Uh, but he is heir of the righteousness which is by faith, that is heaven. He is heir of heaven. But notice what it says here. By the which he condemned the world. You see, if you focus on love for Christ... If you say, I'm going all out for the Lord Jesus Christ, he is everything. He is my north and south, my east and west. He is beneath and above. He is my bread and butter. He is my delight. He is everything. People will see that. You know, you can't love God and not love your fellow man, truly. That's what John says in his first epistle. If any man says he loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar. The two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your fellow man as yourself. The two are not really separate, they're one. And this is, I think, very important. It's exemplified by Noah. He set about building the ark, doing exactly what God told him to do. And if you say, my life is to be motivated by love for God. I will give my all to him and do everything he says. He will take care of your witness. He will take care of the outcomes. Make no mistake, that doesn't stop us from saying, let's go out and let's preach the gospel. But I think the most important thing is to have that love and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ developed and developed and Pressing on, as Paul says, I press on, upward calling.
Now you've been very patient hearing me tonight. I wanted just to exhort you (coughs) from this little passage. I have in my mind um, what Paul said to Timothy. The goal of our instruction is love. That's what he was, that's what he was all about. And that's my instru- uh, my goal here. My goal is that you might love the Lord Jesus Christ more now than when you started. But Paul went on, from a sincere heart, from a good conscience, and from an unfeigned faith. Now, unless you hear and are born again, my words will fall on deaf ears. You need to be born again. And the Lord says this, as many as received Christ, he gave them the right to become children of God, born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So my urgent plea to you is that you might think, that you might love Christ more, and that you might seek him more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I praise you for your word which is living and sharper than any two-edged sword, and which does its work wonderfully. The word of God comes, and it's life and health and peace to those who are seeking and who desire more. It's condemning and cutting off to those who are insistent on rebelling and turning away. You're dividing and sifting your world The more we preach, the more we seek, the more your sifting process will go on. We praise you. We look forward to the day when you will return in vengeance against your enemies. Lord, you're reigning on high even now. You are judging and ruling. Uh, One day, all things will be resolved, and fully so. We look forward to that day. But in the meantime, may we be as Noah, building the ark Christ, developing our faith and teaching our children and exhorting people to turn to Christ, to see his beauty, his wonder. Lord, have mercy on these people. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Saviour be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen.